Hi there, my name is Parker Sullivan, and you're listening to Rocky Vista University College of Osteopathic Medicine's Health Equity Club mini-interview series. Today, with my colleague Brady Patterson, we interview Dr. Ed Farrell, a gentleman who has over two decades of experience practicing medicine directly with people experiencing homelessness. His wealth of knowledge is invaluable for those looking to serve these populations in the future. Enjoy. All right. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Health Equity Club's mini interview series. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Ed Farrell, who is currently the medical director of the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. Uh, Dr. Farrell, thank you so much for being here. Parker, thanks so much for having me. You too, Brady. It's an honor to be here. A very brief on my background. You know, I'm a family practice physician. I've been lucky to be a uh, medical leader for more than 30 years now. It's just beyond my wildest dreams. I get to work at CCH. And I did healthcare leadership, by the way, for 27 years here and at Clinica Family Health and then back here. But I did step down from the medical director position about a year ago. And so I'm still definitely a leader, yet uh, my biggest responsibility and role is uh, liaising with residents who come here to do rotations and or giving talks at various residency programs and other fora, if you will. And just Style Street is a part of the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, founded in the mid-80s as one of the original Robert Wood Johnson grant sites with the burgeoning new homelessness in America problem and CCH delivers a wide array of health, mental health, dental, case management, um, psychiatry, substance use, nursing, and housing services to people uh, in the metropolitan area and beyond. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, sorry, I did not realize that your role had changed. Thank you for um, you know telling us a little bit about what you what you do and what you have done over the last several years. So uh, one thing that I'm particularly interested in is is working with the, the, the population of people experiencing homelessness in the future. And I'm, I'm curious about your particular experience in medical school. What do you feel, you know, uh, uh, regarding topics that specifically affect people experiencing homelessness? What do you feel was covered well in medical school? And then maybe what were some things that you felt could have been covered better or were not covered very well? You know, um, Parker, this might be my shortest answer of all, because, you know, even though I think in my mind's eye, I'm 28, I'm not. And so in medical school, I graduated in 1988. So my training to do with healthcare for the homeless was a big nothing burger. <laughs> like the, seriously, homelessness in America really wasn't becoming an issue until about the mid-80s. And the leaders, shakers, who started up the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless back then, and, and the folks, I mean, I remember talking to folks who were senior to me, you know, they would get together for a healthcare for the homeless conference, and they, they thought, and they weren't delusional. We, we can lick this. Like, we're going to work ourselves out of jobs. 
like people who had conferences in like 88, which is when I was in medical school. Not much of a problem at all. And we will work ourselves out of a job. No more homelessness in America. And of course, that didn't, didn't happen. So that's my uh, brief answer on medical school training for healthcare for the homeless. So Dr. Farrell, with, with that answer, um, kind of uh, a, a lack of uh, training in medical school, what were some of the specific insights that you gained during your training and maybe residency that significantly influenced your commitment to serving that population? Yeah, I appreciate that, Brady. You know, I was I ended up setting up rotations during my fourth year of medical school to really uh, that were pretty unique. So I did an Indian Health Service rotation, and I did work for two months during my fourth year of medical school in the hall. And I was blown away, especially in Nepal, you know, witnessing one gentleman who walked two days to the clinic. Can I get a pill to cure my extreme left-sided arm and leg weakness? So this gentleman suffered a stroke. It took him 14 days to walk. Walk that could have taken you or me a day and a half. He was just hoping for a pill. And then my other big like moment there that just blows my mind is seeing a gentleman. We we would diagnose about one to two cases of leprosy per day. Excuse me, Hansen's disease. Uh, this gentleman was working the fields with just, you know, because of the leprosy and the numbness and the little burns and trauma, micro traumas you get. He ended up with these spatula hands still working the field to feed his family. Um, the other thing between my arrival here and uh, residency, I actually checked out for one year being a Jesuit priest after residency, kind of a unique little foray. And, and, the, and the Jesuits really imbued into my psyche in a deeper way, like healthcare, housing, treating people with dignity and respect are just human rights, non-negotiables. And I think that, you know, I, I was, I've been blown away how actually Western medicine, despite all of the miracles and the amazing things we do, it is so limited in terms of, you know what, we, we don't have a cure for this. We don't have a magic wand to take away someone's prior trauma. And I really uh, felt that like doing healthcare for the homeless as a way to help those folks who most needed it, who were kind of a little bit of the waste paper basket or the waste refuse of society and often don't have a voice. Uh, that, that it was kind of just being on the side of uh, folks who really need help. And honestly, I think they have more to teach us than we have to offer them. I like what you said there about at the end there. They they had more to teach you than we had to offer them. I think there's a lot we can learn from our patients, our future patients, and especially those who sometimes get the least service from our uh, medical system, especially in uh, Western healthcare. And uh, I don't know if Parker has a follow-up question for that. The the lack of Western healthcare being able to bridge the gap for these for this vulnerable population. Yeah, that's really astute, Brady. And you know, I think especially like in traditional hospital settings, like it is very difficult to treat folks the way that that we would maybe necessarily want to be treated. 
that's even like for me being in the hospital, I've experienced it myself. I've had family members. I, I think the key things, I'd say there's three things. So like no matter where we are, including in the busy, intensive hospital setting, how do we breathe motivational interviewing? That's a subject unto itself. Harm reduction and trauma-informed care, you know, which really that combination means meeting people where they are. You know, be curious, be open. Don't come at people that we know all the answers. You know, we we can be in the hospital and someone's leaving AMA, and we're we're like that person left AMA. What a, an idiot! Seriously, right? That's this is what people experience during their medical training. People talking like that. But wait a minute. There, if, if you're curious, I'm like, why do you have to leave? Well, I'm going to, you know, miss my critical appointment to get social security disability. Like, so we kind of then understand, wow, that decision actually makes sense. Or maybe it is somebody who's going through alcohol withdrawal. And you know what? The last time I didn't get out of the hospital fast enough, I had a seizure and almost died. And, you know, and realize this person has an alcohol use disorder. And and, and I guess the other piece about the be curious is I, I like to say that we dare to peel back the layers of the onion. I, uh, this is before, this is when I was working at Clinica and I was doing hospital work in addition to outpatient care. And I was lucky enough to be a, a physician leader there as well. This woman came in, uh, maybe 35 years old, diabetes, hypertension, non-smoker, very high BMI, BMI 350 plus pounds. Good enough story that, that we had to admit her for a rule out MI very appropriately. And one of the most famous places where physicians and even nutritionists have counter-transference or reactions against their patients is for people who have high BMIs. And I was kind of reading up on that in the month or year before then. And, and I think it was slightly, it, it wasn't brand new news, but it was kind of, kind of finally being publicized that many, many women who have very high BMIs have suffered uh, childhood sexual trauma. And I actually, in, in the middle after this lovely woman ruled out for her mind, she was in the ICU and I, I had a moment where I, I actually had time in my day and I used MI and, you know, with a kind of a opening set the stage question of, she's um, so many folks who have, uh, you know, high BMIs and they don't feel great about it. And, and it's hard to get help. And one thing is that lots of those folks have had severe trauma when they were young, and they've maybe never talked about that before. The next thing you know, this woman's breaking down, sharing her story of childhood uh, incest on, on ongoing fashion for years, and she never told anybody. So just, it's so sobering. And, and it's hard for us to, carve out the time to meet people where they are and be real about them. With the advent of AI and like, you know, we might lose our jobs sometimes. <laughs> Wish I were kidding. Wish I were kidding. But 
And, you know, no, nothing can replace the, the, the healing that can happen in personal relationship. An AI bot isn't going to get that from someone. By the way, we wouldn't want to ask that kind of question and have someone, you know, give you that answer unless we have kind of a plan for, okay, here's what we can do. Here's the services you could seek out. You also want to make sure that people don't, uh, you know, I don't want to hear the details because that could be secondarily traumatizing and reactivating and triggering for her. So anyway, in this case, was able to give her good resources to go to, 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 you know, hopefully deal with the horrible trauma she had in her life. That's an amazing story. Thank you for that. Um, you, I mean, with that, with that answer and that story, you kind of have, have already answered a little bit extremely profoundly uh, how a question that I was planning on asking. But I guess in addition to meeting people where they are using the trauma-informed care, the um, motivational interviewing, um, is there something that, are there, are there things that you would tell someone working in a more traditional uh, setting, like in a hospital or a clinic of some kind, who um, is treating people experiencing homelessness or people who are traditionally underserved and underrepresented? Um, are there other things that you would tell those types of physicians, you know, maybe brush up on these sorts of things, um, you can better uh, take care of these of these populations? I appreciate that frame, Parker. I think that, you know, it, it can be hard. Uh, you know, I, I do understand, the, you know, the hospital world and, and the attitudes. And, and honestly, let's let's just talk about the anti Folks who are experiencing homelessness attitudes, folks of a lower economic, socioeconomic strata attitudes. I think one thing we can do is is try to imbue this notion, this reality that when when you've met one person experiencing homelessness, you've met one person experiencing homelessness, and their journey to that and who they are isn't that they're homeless. And it's unique. Um, and the notion of like, get a job. It's just, you know, really, so it's a three word answer that might make people feel better, but it just belies the reality of what folks have, have faced. And I guess, Parker, I'm gonna actually go to this, that, uh, you know, there's, I've, I've had ER, emergency medicine, uh, resident who who worked down here and and she was pretty amazing and she said well what asked me well what do you do with an attending physician in the ER who says things like go see that drunk in bay thirty eight so you know trauma upon trauma and you know like talk about moral injury just flying off the page from the attending physician to the people around them. I, I don't have an easy answer because, it, it, you know, medical student can't really say, yo, but, I, right? But, you know, I think my answer is this, is that, and I think that she basically thought, oh, that's pretty helpful. You know, wow, wow, you mean I'll go see, you want me to go see Mr. Jones? And then you go see Mr. Jones and and and, and then that person can dare to peel away the layers of the onion and come back and say, Mr. Jones is kind of unbelievable, but he he had he lost his wife two years ago. 
he's had a really tough life and it sounds like he got, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder from something that happened to him. And yes, indeed, he also suffers from alcohol use disorder. And then maybe something can go off in that attending physicians, at least off the cuff, go see that drunk. And, and maybe what we can do is to try to humanize people. And, you know, we talk about dehumanizations, but I, I think it's like demonizing. It's like even worse than, they're slightly different, but I try to really help people see this person who has a life story. We all have our stories. And the stories of the people that we see who've experienced some homelessness are heart-wrenching. And, you know, I think we should all be able to conclude that, but by the grace that is beyond us, we could be in their shoes. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, I um, kind of summarize everything that's being said. There was an article that was actually given to us at our medical school and in first year that it, um, it just kind of brought it to my mind of the conversation we're having here. And I'll just read a small excerpt from it. And it, it asked the question, what does a doctor have to offer when treatment has reached its limits? And they kind of answered in many contexts, a significant portion of our patients will be nearing the limits of what conventional treatment can accomplish. And the most important thing we have to offer is our presence and compassion. And then I think there's further treatment, like you're saying, in peeling back the onion, being intentional with our interviewing. Um, so I, I really like the entire approach here of the misconceptions surrounding these populations and then just making sure to not leave your heart at the door when you're going in to see these patients is a, is a big thing that at least I'm taking from what you're saying. Kind of as we transition throughout the interview, I wanted to mention and just ask, so my, work, my wife, she works for the gathering place just off of Colfax. And she's been telling me about um, the health program they have there called Stout Street. Well, it, I understand that's part of CCH and Stout Street visits every Wednesday and it kind of like a medical bus of, of what I understand. And she said they offer a range of healthcare services. Can you tell us more about Stout Street and how that medical bus operates? And then for our listeners and I admit for personal interest, are there any opportunities for medical students to get involved and volunteer with the Stout Street program? Yeah, that's a great question, Brady. And it, it is, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess my story is maybe I've spent about 22 years out of the past almost 30 working in Stout Street. But I I think the thing that, you know, we just, when I started, we had five medical providers and we, the whole organization was in the little tiny building across the street from here. But what we did over years and years is, oh, wow, we need to have, be able to take the outreach van to places that are too far for people to come here. By the way, too far might be eight blocks because folks might not be able to walk. They might have a lot of trauma. And so coming into a big, scary clinic isn't going to work for them, or they might not have the motivation. So the health outreach programs did start with this teeny tiny little van. And then now it's like this version 3.0 with, uh, you know, Big exam rooms, ability to draw blood, pharmacy on board. Uh, you know, we go out to various shelters on a set schedule, various locations. And so we're 
really grateful to be at the Gathering Place, which is an amazing organization. We need you know, none of us row alone. We row with all the other organizations helping supporting folks experiencing homelessness. So yeah, so the the van goes to there, and we'll see folks. Um, we let people know we're there, and we get to see people there in many other locations. And then in terms of like medical students, you know, at this point, we are we have increased the number of residents and residency programs that work at CCH really markedly in the last like 15 months. I might have something to do with that because that was the big thing I've taken on in about the last 15 months. So I don't think we have any like, wow, here's the quick and way that folks could um, start doing rotations down here. And I'd be happy to talk about that and socialize that with you all, so to speak, you know, offline another time. I had a question just regarding, I, I guess, obviously, like you, you've touched on this a little bit, but but folks that are in this population tend to experience health issues that are uncommon to those that are not in this population. You know, like like you had mentioned earlier, like the Hansen's disease um, and, and things like that, that they're put at higher risk for because, uh, you know, of their living situation. So um, I wanted to ask you, in what ways do you feel that health attributes to the persistence of having to live outdoors? And then how do you feel the healthcare consistency the healthcare system itself is contributing to the issue of, of homelessness in the United States. I mean, that ends up being a lot to unpack. I think what <laughs> yeah, I'll I guess do is so. I'll, now it's a great question. I love the question. <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> and, and I, I'm just going to, first at least, you know what, I'm, I'm going to start with this, is that you know there's a book that came out long, long ago Betrayal of Trust, the Collapse of Global Public Health. And, you know, the, the collapse of the global public health system and our public health system in America started with uh, when beloved President Ronald Reagan was here. And we actively defunded public health. And and it's, you know, like during, and, and, and so we've had decades long negative ramifications from that including, you know, the CDC is doing the very best they can with what they got. They're not perfect. No one is. But during the pandemic, if you wanted to look at a model uh, organization that had data, action, uh, public buy-in, now we have a challenge with public buy-in here, uh, and, and they got some things wrong. But you'd probably want to, like, model things after the Korean CDC, for example, which is much better funded. So a lot of these diseases that we see, they're really on the upswing in a big way. Syphilis, we now see more neonatal syphilis, two and a half times more than prior. Uh, we are seeing uh, much more chlamydia and gonorrhea. And then for folks who are experiencing homelessness, we do see much higher rates of those diseases. You know, tuberculosis is on the upswing. Um, you know, it's very sobering. And and all you have to do is is look upstream. And um and you probably know the global like 
public health analogy of upstream thinking. So, you know, that's how, you know, my, my buddy, uh, colleague and inspiration, you might not like it when I say this, Bill Berman from, who did, ran public health in Denver for 11 years. One day he was, in, you know, talking to me with somebody. And he said, well, that Ed Farrell guy, he does public health. He just doesn't know it. And I said, well, I do know it, Bill, but you're right. Because part of the thing is, you know, we see tuberculosis in the shelters. We aren't seeing that anymore. This is back in the 90s. Hey, we got to think upstream. What's the public health response? The COVID response among PEH and folks in shelters was massive and multi-organizational. And we had to think not just about the patient in front of us. So I think that the things that contribute to bad health outcomes include lack of health insurance, lack of access to excellent preventive and treatment uh, strategies. What else is huge? Lack of housing. The, the biggest reason why we have so many folks experiencing homelessness is lack of housing. 10 years ago, if you were getting a disability check, uh, you'd earned your disability and you were on the streets because a landlord kicked you out. I could walk you down the hallway and you would get housed in one to two to four weeks, always. Now, one to two to four years, if you're lucky. The, you know, the prison, jail, shall we say, industrial complex usually contributes to poor health outcomes because people are getting cycled in and out of jail and they, and they for things that are a part of being homeless, they're getting ticketed and into jail and we don't and we, we jail them instead of giving them the treatment that they need. So the contributions from like our medical care system and our plethora of inequities across housing, jobs, and economics are, are huge causes and um, truly exacerbators of the healthcare of, of folks being homeless and their healthcare. Yeah, it seems like it's like a, a, a vicious cycle or even like a snowballing situation where the the inequalities in, in the socioeconomic side of things and the, and the housing availability side of things leads to homelessness, which leads to poor health outcomes, which leads to poor ability to you know remove yourself from those poor socioeconomic um, uh, statuses and things like that. And it's just, uh, it becomes a cycle, um, you know, that it's very hard to get out of. Um, so thank you for that. Yeah, and you've hit the nail on the head. And, and we do know the solutions that, <laughs> you know, housing first, you know, does work. But it can't just be, oh, you're housed and we forget about you. Many, many of the folks who can get into housing first, we've shown that it decreases um, healthcare costs. We know that it decreases jail recidivism. We know that it improves outcomes. Sometimes, and it's disheartening, it's very disheartening, 
mortality isn't always decreased because if somebody, for instance, gets sober into housing and they stop using, you know, the opioids, for instance, and they use one time after a four-week hiatus, that then they, they're no longer have tolerance for the effect of the fentanyl. And then and then that one dose that before wasn't going to cause a problem can take their life. But it can't just be we house you and we forget about you. Folks need the wraparound, integrated health, mental health, substance use, medical, dental, case management services to help people succeed in health. Dr. Farrell, you mentioned um, that it used to be the case a person um, who was getting a disability check or some other form of income could go and get housing relatively quickly and it's extended. Is that extension just strictly due to housing cost going up or is there another contributor to that? You know, it's really complicated and I wish I had a pithy, like, concise and lightning answer to this. But, but one is absolutely the demand-supply mismatch. That, and, and it, you know, for folks that are on the upper echelon of income levels, housing can be found. But at folks who are making minimum wage or a disability check, there's many, many more people competing for a limited housing stock to get in there. And then Section 8, the HUD, Housing and Urban Development, vouchers that used there used to be enough of them, those are have just gone by the wayside. So people are on wait lists for one to two to four years. And then and then those wait lists, you know, it, it comes through this complicated process called one home. And I am not the expert here. But there's this thing called the vulnerability index. There's a longer abbreviation called the VI SPADAT. And that won't take into account, are you on oxygen? Are you on dialysis? Do you have uh, a terminal cancer diagnosis? So you can't jump the waiting list. Even if you're on the streets, for example, with those outrageous three conditions, there's more examples, but... Congestive, right. just go with the congestive heart failure. No, and you need oxygen all 24-7. Let's go with dialysis. Let's go with the gentleman I just saw three weeks ago with metastatic cancer and he doesn't have treatment. Those folks get disability. Their disability is $700 a month. All they need is for somebody to take that $1,400 per month to Section 8 they take one third of your income, so his seven, his her seven hundred bucks. It, it would only be two hundred and ten. Then I mean, still good luck to you. Four ninety per month to live on, but that's that's the big thing. And then there are many complicated things about, you know, redlining, NIMBYism. You know, just there's no oh, like builders have to set aside a certain percentage of their units for low-income housing or the money, but instead they just pay the fine, they write a check, and then the housing doesn't get built. So in Denver, we're short tens of thousands of units nationwide, three and a half million units of housing short. And, you know, cities that 
don't have ex expensive as housing have not had the it, they've, they've had a much lesser increase or they've had a decrease it's actually been a decrease in the number of folks on the streets and it's and that, an example for that is Houston nice article in the New York Times just Houston unique solutions for homelessness it, it'll probably be the first hit pretty long article from a year ago and you know we do say housing is healthcare and and I totally believe that and housing alone isn't healthcare like you know we are now doing home visits and not as many as we'd like to be doing but it has to be housing plus all these wraparound services being available that's healthcare and then healthcare is housing lots of folks come and see us and we actually realize they have an undiagnosed dementia you know we can get them help with that we can you know maybe get them prioritized for housing and you know we need we need the dance of both healthcare and housing coming together in a beautiful symphony for many thousands of people millions in the country yeah just to just to touch on that um when we when we came to the CCH to visit with you all a few weeks ago i think it was either you or um your colleague had a statistic about the Denver area, um, and I just found it again online. But this has stuck with me. It's for every 100 families living at 80 to 100 percent of the area median income, there's 102 units available for them. For every 100 families living 30 percent or below of the of the area median income, there are 29 units available for them. So that's just such a, a profound amount of inequity and unavailability uh and it, it's just you know you know how I, i'm not i'm not a businessman but I, I i hear that uh when there's when there's low supply and high demand that makes the prices go up so um i can't imagine uh you know how extreme this has gotten and especially in our area of denver yeah, it really has. I appreciate you finding that stat. It was literally that slide. It was it was from Alexis. That slide was right, right around my head. I was like, I don't remember the one hundred for the twenty nine. And you know, we're all playing the little game of uh, you know, ring around the you know or musical chairs and good luck finding a chair. Exactly. It's like three chairs for ten people. Yeah. <laughs> It changes the game a little bit, I would say. For real. And, and the, the other thing to just kind of touch on, too, is, you know, there's this inequity, disparity, injustice because of people's income, because folks are experiencing homelessness, and also in a big way for people who are BIPOC. And, you know, so it's inequity on top of injustice squared. And in, indeed, that VI SPADAT tool has, has been shown to prioritize people uh, who are Caucasian over people of color. And there are, are nationwide and, and in Denver, you know, things being done to ameliorate, tampen down, tamp down, or eliminate that particular injustice. And I, and I think we're making progress on there, or we might even be where we need to be. But just you know, that tool's been used for decades, and it's just—I mean, we we all just need to shake our heads and and, and shudder and, and and understand that, you know, people like me, like I have 
benefited from profound white privilege. And, you know, well, what am I going to do about that? I, I can't not be white. Like I'm right. We're all stuck with that. We're all stuck with me being white. And but I, I realize it too. I think to a pretty high degree for a white guy. And, you know, my only answer is, is to try to do everything I can to use that to fight injustice, inequity, and racism to the, to the best that I can from learning from all the people around me every day. Hearing about the work that you do that CCH does, and then primarily uh, as a medical professional, professional working um, in, uh, you know, playing a small part in, in helping a, a, a vulnerable population, where do you see hope in your work? Because it sounds like there's a lot of different angles that you have to attack uh, a problem like this. You talked about housing, you talked about specific conditions and um, systems that you're working through, and it can get complex, and I'm sure you're solving a ton of problems. Where do you see um, kind of the hope in the work you're doing and, and what keeps you going and um, and keeps you excited about coming to work every day? And I, I know that's probably not the case every day, but, but tell me more about that. Great question, reading. You know, I think that um, one key, and, and, and hope is related to resilience, joy in work, not being burnt out, like many different sides of a complicated, you know, multi-sided, complicated, three-dimensional object. I have great hope one person at a time. And, you know, we do see miracles every day. We have opened up our recuperative care center. So 75 beds for folks who aren't sick enough to remain in the hospital, but they're too ill, needs are too high to be discharged to the streets or the shelters. By the way, this does not keep hospitals from discharging people to the streets. It shouldn't be. And sometimes there really might not be much of a choice. But it is amazing. You know, uh, one of our education and advocacy staff was was had, had spoken to somebody. It might have been at the gathering place. And, and, and she, she just said, so how are things going for you? And she said, oh, my gosh, I was admitted to that recuperative care center. And I've never been treated so well by people in my life. And we see people leave from recuperative care and have been on the streets for five years. They are newly taking medications. We always say like, oh my gosh, it's the gift of a broken leg that you got admitted to recuperative care. You got off the streets and the shelters and you realize you're getting meals, you're being cared for. We're hopefully really treating people with dignity and respect. Heaven knows we're trying. And all of a sudden they're, maybe off substances or they are willing to take their medications for depression or bipolar mood disorder. And the next thing you know, they work with our case management folks and they get housed. So this just gives me great hope. One patient at a time with great stories. I think the other thing that's seriously key, you know, MI can really change your life. This is my second thing I hang my hope on. So you're not myocardial infarction, motivational interviewing. Is corny. I still like to say it. And I've had providers who like have breathed into like, you know what, I'm going to do this MI thing. And they just say it completely changes their life. And, and one way is 
that using it really effectively deepens the relationship. It peels away the layers of the onion and you get to talk about real things. And that's really helpful in healing. And, you know, you also realize I don't have to be like, you need to stop drinking anymore. You can just be like, wow, it sounds like drinking has a lot of benefits for you. You know, when, when physicians say that, it blows people's minds. They're like, huh, yeah, I guess you're right, it does. Or, hey, it makes sense that you're using methamphetamine because that way you don't get assaulted in the middle of the night or raped. Like a lot of women who are homeless on the streets purposefully I'm using meth right now. It's 10 p.m. on Friday night. This will keep me safe. And so when you engage with people using MI, I guess MI gives me hope that it makes the relationships real. It's been shown to be as good or better than any other method in terms of barking on a change journey with a patient. Better outcomes or as good than any other with less time than any other possible approach. But the third thing that MI does is it it makes it so we stop letting our happiness depend upon whether or not someone changes their behavior. Like that's actually the definition of insanity. Letting your happiness depend upon whether or not someone else changes their behavior. So MI is freeing and, and then it gives you hope because you're having real connections and hey someone's all, all of a sudden willing to take the COVID shot willing to take their blood pressure meds they're cool with checking a syphilis test and we can cure their syphilis with a shot of penicillin so that gives me hope that's that's just the one-on-one -on -one stuff second thing that gives me hope is working with and interfacing with this community of people who we just believe we believe that we're making a difference we believe we can, and we are. Like, it's pretty cool who I get to be with day in, day out in this organization and beyond. And I think the third thing is, I just think that we're making some pretty great changes. Like that recuperative care facility, I'm kind of pointing at it. That's a little bit of a miracle. Increased funding for housing in Denver, that's a little miracle. Hey, in case we forget, the ACA, Obamacare, like what a miracle. Like the United States is populous. I don't think they understand it. Like the millions of people, that instead of me saying to people, well, no one will treat your breast cancer until it goes metastatic, right? That's not hyperbole. No insurance. You're not in Denver County. That was the word pre-Obamacare. Now, you qualify for Medicaid. We'll treat your breast cancer. So I, I do think the other thing that gives me hope is that I, I think that sooner or later, there's going to be, be like, you know what happened with Obamacare? Finally, enough people believe, like, wow, this is crazy that people don't have Medicaid. And that we're telling people you just need to die. Or we'll wait till your breast cancer goes metastatic. But we got a popular mass of people to, that that realized we should care about our other humans. I, I think that that's, it's gonna happen again. Don't know when the pendulum might swing further in the wrong direction, but you know, Martin Luther King, I'm mm, gonna get it right. The arc 
of the moral universe bends towards justice. And it's hard to believe that sometimes, but I, I just believe, and I think that's our only hope is we gotta, we gotta believe that we can keep making a difference together. Amazing. Um, I think you got that quote correct. If, if, if my knowledge of it is correct, then I think you're correct. <laughs> and Dr. Farrell, uh, I think Brady and I could sit here and pick your brain for the next three hours, but I think we'll have, we'll, we'll cut ourselves off now. Thank you so much. This has been incredible. We, we so appreciate hearing about your incredible career and the profound insights that you have received uh, from from working and, and serving these populations. So uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an honor to spend time with you. All right. Take good care and uh, don't lose your faith and hope in the uh, rigors and cray cray of medical school. There's light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> We're trying our Thanks, hardest. Thanks, Dr. Farrell. All right. Take care.